I kid a lot about what my favorite verse, my favorite psalm is. Psalm 139 really is my favorite psalm. And I remember the first time it was read to me. We were in a car with about four or five people. And somebody in the back seat said, said, what a great psalm this is. And they read it out loud all the way through. And I just thought, what a wonderful psalm about how well the Lord knows you and how well he knows me. This psalm is written by David to the chief musician. Again, this would have been set to music. This psalm reveals some theological words that we use to describe the attributes of our Heavenly Father. Number one, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his, his omnipotence. First of all, uh, as we talk about all-knowing, that would be omniscient. There isn't anything the Lord doesn't know, and we'll be showing that in the first six verses here tonight. His uh, omnipresence. Uh, We'll be getting sidetracked on this on Sunday because it's misunderstood that God is everywhere. And David's going to talk about it in this psalm here. Where can I go from your presence? On Sunday, uh, it is being misused, and especially when it gets into the realm of talking about predestination. And I'll address that more in detail as we look at that as a topic, along with the abortion issue from Psalm 139 on Sunday. Omnipotent, is all-powerful. So let's dive in tonight as we look at these characteristics of the Lord. First six verses, my favorite Psalm 139. <clears throat> o Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. And there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Go back to verse 2. This is getting into the area of the all-knowing God. He understands my thoughts afar off. I'm going to give you a, a practical demonstration of this um, with John the Baptist. We need to turn to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11. I picked this because the Lord himself said that John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. Now, consider who's saying it and consider who he's telling it to. He would have been... John the Baptist would have been six months older than Jesus. They were related. They were cousins. And yet John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until he actually saw the Holy Spirit come down and rest upon him the day that he was baptized. John didn't want to do it. But the Lord told John, do it so that all things might be fulfilled. John thought, I'm the one that should be baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. He said, suffer it to be so, John. Just do it for now. So here is the greatest man who ever lived. But John never did a miracle. And he really only had one job. When he was asked what he was all about, he just said, look, I'm just a voice. I'm just an ordinary voice crying in the wilderness, make way for the Lord. He was the forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now having said that, 
when you get to chapter 11, verse 2, as the last thing that John said about himself was he must decrease and Jesus must increase. Those were the, the final words of John the Baptist. So as John is fading off the scene, he finds himself in prison for standing up and speaking out against the corruption uh, in his own government. Verse 2, and when John, had heard, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said, Are you the coming one, or do you look for or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, I want you to go back and tell John the things that you hear and see. So John is in prison, and he's having his doubts. Now this is, this is mind-boggling to me, because the very reason for his existence was to testify that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was his job. And now, showing that we're all human, and we can all go through periods of time. I remember being interviewed one time, uh, the, the statewide Christian newspaper. And they, they're, every month they would have a different pastor's story. And they asked the same questions every single month. And one of them that they asked me was, do you ever doubt? And um, I was told later that I was the only pastor that, that answered in the negative, or in the affirmative, and I said, yes, yes I do. And uh, I said, only because I can't put myself above John the Baptist when he doubted. Or when Jesus would often chide the disciples and said, guys, where's your faith? And he would actually call them out on the carpet. So they, if, if they're asking that question to me, I don't have the audacity to say that I'm better than John the Baptist or disciples. There's times when when we as humans doubt, if the greatest man who ever lived doubted, how much, how much you, are, you and I. So here's John, and he's doubting. Are you the one? Or should we be looking for somebody else here? Verse 5, this is what he tells them. Tell John, uh, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf can hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he just lays out when it looks into the Old Testament, what are we to look for when the Messiah comes? How do we recognize him? Well, he will do these things. So he's basically using scripture to answer John's question. But remember Psalm 139, it says, he knows our thoughts from afar off. And what Jesus is going to say next here is from filling in Psalm 139 where he understands my thoughts from afar and he understands your thoughts from afar. And the issue with John and the reason for his doubt is in verse six, Jesus added this. He said, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Say what? He's talking to the greatest man who ever lived here. What does he mean, offended? And... Uh, this is going to cut John to the heart. And the Lord told that his, John um, the Baptist's disciples, make sure you say that part. Make sure you tell John, blessed is a person who is not offended by me. Implying what? John the Baptist was offended by something that Jesus was doing. 
And it, it had to hit John right between the eyes because nobody knew that, okay? He's not telling his disciples that. But he's personally offended. Now, as I think it through, I thought, why would John be offended with Jesus? What could Jesus do that would possibly offend John? Well, remember, John the Baptist was under the vow of a Nazarite. That's why he had the long hair. That's why he uh, uh, was in the wilderness. That's why he wore the sackcloth. Um, He was um, uh, under the Levitical law of a Nazarene, which means you couldn't uh, much less drink wine. You couldn't even eat grapes. So he was under this very regimented, strict lifestyle. He probably did live with the Essenes um, down in Qumran. Uh, That is very close to where he was baptizing in the Jordan, very close to where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. He's probably a part of that, that community. But here's Jesus. I mean, he's hanging out with tax collectors. And uh, he's, uh, um, he, when he made the wine in John chapter 2, it's the very first miracle that was there, and there's no getting around that it, this was the good stuff that was being made, and that was the observation of the guy who was uh, doing the wine testing there. Well, that would, that would be an offense to John. But it was the one thing here that got his attention. In other words, he was busted. John the Baptist was busted because the Lord goes to the heart of the matter. Tell him all these things, the death here, the blind see, raised the, death, uh, the dead are raised back to life, all the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. Come on, John. And yet, one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is um, that we're still human in these bodies as Christians. Spirit's willing, right? But the flesh is weak. That's the problem. So we want a good time for an amen right there. Spirit's willing. As, as Paul said, you know, the things that I should do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't do, I do do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this life? Who will save me from this flesh? The flesh stinks. It seeks its own. It doesn't want to die. It wants to rule. And um, so as we start out tonight, um, if it can happen to John the Baptist, it's going to happen to you, and it's going to happen to me. All right, let's make our way back to um, Psalm 139. He said, you know and understand my thoughts afar off. Well, he certainly understood John the Baptist's thoughts afar off. Now, in verses 7 through 12, the other attribute of God is his omnipresence. And we'll read, um, oh, 7 through 12 here. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. And so here... um, there's no place that uh, the Lord isn't. We're going to see that more as we um, get into these next verses here. But the omnipresence of God. Um, we're told the universe itself can't hold him when 
they were talking about building uh, the temple. That's what David wanted to do. He says, okay, David, you want to build me a home, huh? Uh, the heavens of heavens cannot contain me. He is outside the vast universe that he created. And uh, when he measures the universe that we look at, I think it's up to 17 billion light years across. They keep adding to that as the telescopes get sharper. But the Lord says, how big is the universe? About that big. He says the span of his fingers. From from this finger, if you're God, the universe that we're living in, from here to here, that's how big it is. And uh, that's how he measures it. And he says he has to humble himself even to look into that. So the omnipresence, uh, we'll address that in more detail and how it's misapplied on, on Sunday. Verses 13 to 18. You have formed my inward parts. You have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and my soul knows all very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your books they were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to be, O God, and how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand, and when I'm awake, I am still with you. Uh, all scripture is inspired. So as we look at these verses here, and we apply it to um, current events, um, I think it's 55 million since Roe v. Wade where we legalized abortion in our country. And um, it's one of the major topics today. We're gearing up for the political rhetoric over the next year. I'm really looking forward to that. And, um, and yet it'll be, where, where do you stand on this particular issue? Where does life begin? And the, and the answer is, before, before the womb. That's what we read here. Where, where did you begin? Well, you saw my substance being yet un, unformed. My frame was hidden, secret, when there was no days, verse 10, 16, they were all written. The days were fashioned for me, when yet there was none of them. So when does life begin? Well, before conception, because God, God knew you, and ordained for your existence. And um, with that, I'm going to read something that uh, uh, Mary shot a letter out to the uh, pastor of the Unitarian Universalist Church this last week, and I'm going to quote it tonight, and I'm going to quote it again on Sunday morning. This is a portion of it. The Appleton Unitarian Universalist Church on Calumet Street, now called The Fellowship, has been displaying a banner on their main sign for some time now that says, Black Lives Matter. In response, of course, to the random violent protests that have occurred across the U.S. of late, 
The banner states the obvious, because no rational human would argue with that. So who is the sign meant for? Passing the sign almost daily, my mind is working over their motive and what they actually believe as a fellowship that would cause them to hang that out on a busy street. Well, I'm well aware that the Unitarian Church across America is pro-abortion officially, which has been a political issue for decades. With this sign, excuse me, with this sign as well, life becomes a political football when it suits their agenda, which is widely hypocritical because everyone knows that abortion takes the lives of humans of every race. I felt it important to write a letter to express this to the senior minister of the Appleton Unitarian Church to make the point that the importance in the protection of life is a concept that begins and ends with what the Bible says about it, regardless of any political persuasion. And the clearest teaching beyond the commandments themselves can be found in Psalm 139, which states that God knew us before we even took our first breath. So in addressing this, we have not heard, heard back. I don't think we're going to. Um, but um, I'm, I'm glad uh, Mayor called this guy on the, on the carpet uh, with the, the hypocrisy of the side that was there. And uh, we'll deal more with the abortion issue again when we get into the topical side of 139 on Sunday. Uh, let's finish it out here. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? And then David said, I hate them with perfect hatred, and I count them as enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way that's everlasting. This last part here is reminiscent on where we were on Sunday when I told you it was a prayer in Psalm 137. Just flip back to it, and I'll just refresh your memory just a little bit. Imprecatory psalm, which means a psalm actually calling for vengeance or justice. And of course, um, uh, we talked about Babylon in particular, and that God actually did judge and will judge in the future. He judged Babylon in the past. He's going to judge Babylon in the future. And uh, he will probably judge our nation because of our sins, as we see us drifting ever um, so far away. In the last couple of verses of Psalm 139, it is reminiscent of Psalm 137 in that it calls for judgment upon the enemies of the Lord. And then he ends it on a personal note by um, saying, Lord, you know, my flesh is so tricky. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. My flesh is so tricky. He says, you show me, Lord. And here is just a great, honest verse about being open to a God who can see everything and anything anyway. Somebody want to say amen to that? 
Of course he sees everything, and of course he knows everything. So now David is actually giving him permission. He says, okay, Lord, check it out. Search my heart, and uh, you know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me, any areas that I need to clean up, whatever. Lord, here's the open door, and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Psalm 139, what a great, great psalm. Psalm 140, verses 1 through 11 We'll, let's read it and we'll come back and we'll uh, pick a topic out of here. Uh, this is also from David. And probably uh, these next several ones is he's probably um, on the run from Saul. He was afraid for his life. And um, those that were speaking against him, uh, Saul and his adversaries, talking about where David was hiding out and how to catch him. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men and preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts and they continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. Uh, The poison of asp is under their lips, Selah. So he wants us to think about that. This verse here will come back. We'll talk about the tongue a little bit. And David's concern here, of course, is a continual plotting of where is David hiding out now and being informed and Saul getting his troops together as they talking about how they're going to actually take David out. Then it says, um, keep me from, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked and preserve me from violent men who have purpose to make my steps to stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside, and they have set traps for me, Selah. Again, a reference, I think, to Saul and trying to catch David. I said to the Lord, you are my God, and hear the voice of my supplication, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme. Now, here it's directed singularly, I think, towards Saul. Lest they be exalted, Selah. And as for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. And let not a slanderer be established in the earth, and let evil hunt the violent men to overthrow him. All right, we get sidetracked on this one. What comes up several times is the planning and the scheming and the slander and the tongue seem to be the thing that David is telling us to think about, Selah. All right, let's do that. Let's talk about slander. Let's talk about the tongue. Probably the Proverbs were going to be there very, very shortly. It has so much to say about it. I had to be very, very selective. <clears throat> so I just picked out a couple of chapters. But let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I'll tell you what, before we do that, look at the next Psalm 141 and just uh, draw a line from verse 11. Let not slander be established in your lips. And David, it says in verse 3 of 141, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. 
we are told to speak little and listen much. There's a reason we only have one of these and two of these. And this goes, could get you into so much trouble. And um, so David says, Lord, put a guard over it. All right, let's go to the Proverbs. And um, again, we, there's so many places that we could go in Proverbs. I, I've just picked out a couple. Chapter 6, picking it up in verse oh, 16. <clears throat> These six, six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. First of all, a proud look. The worst sin in the world um, is not sexual immorality or homosexuality or any other stealing sin, the worst sin, and according to the scriptures, is pride. And here, here it is right at the list. The first one he hates is a proud look. And then a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Well, this is what Saul was all about. Feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who loves to sow discord among brethren. Some people just live for the latest gossip, and they can't wait to spread it, not checking if it's true or false. It doesn't really matter to them. And this is, um, again, what David is talking about in these verses here. Um, Then keeping it, that thought all the way down to verse 24, to keep from the evil woman from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Um, You know, you can be commended for something that maybe you do well. And you you should be gracious. You know, if you do do something well, maybe you're gifted or talented in, in an area, and somebody starts, you know, bragging on you or whatever. Well, you can be gracious and say, well, thanks a lot. But in the back of your head, you, you better be saying, Lord, all the glory goes to you. You alone are worthy. Any good and perfect gift, where does it come from? It comes from above. So if you're a talent, say the Lord's given you a talent. And, um, you know, give, give the Lord the glory. We have so many talented people in this fellowship that we could brag on all over the place. But the reason they are where they are is because they're quick to give the glory to the Lord, and it keeps them usable. The thing that will disqualify people quickly is when they actually start thinking they're something other than what they really are. And so let's turn to uh, chapter 21 of Proverbs, picking it up in verse 6. It says, getting, we'll read verse through 20. Uh, 21, picking it up in verse 6, yeah. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. And the way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. It is better to dwell in the corner of a household than a house shared with a contentious woman. And the soul of the wicked devises evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. When the scoffer is punished, the simple will be made wise. Verse 23. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul 
from trouble. Well, this is exactly what David said. Lord, help me to put a guard over this thing. Think it through before you let it out. How many times have we said something, oh, I wish I would have never said that. And it's already out there, too late. You can't, you can't bring it back. So we're told, uh, here's a great verse, if you get nothing out of the study tonight, remember this one. We're to bring every thought into captivity under the lordship of Christ. Every thought, wow. That means before I say what I'm about to say next, I better think it through. It's one of the things I always respected about Chuck. Uh, he, you're in the middle of a Bible study, and you think, is it over? Because <laughs> Chuck's pauses can go on for like 15 seconds. And you wonder, why is it? Well, he's just well thought out. And before he's going to let it out, he's going to think it through. And um, it's, it's just great listening to Chuck because he was always so careful with with how he would word things. You could, you could tell they were thought out before they were put out. Let's just say it that way. All right, in the New Testament, there's one book that is given to this quite a bit. It's the book of James. So let's make our way there. It deals, James is a no-nonsense type guy, very black and white, to the point. No gray areas with James. You know exactly what he's thinking. So when it gets into the area of the tongue, chapter 1, verse 26 tells us, if anyone among you thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, then he deceives his own heart. This, one, this one's religion is useless. In other words, if you're a busybody and you're always busybodying somebody else's business and a tail bearer and a backbiter, then uh, James is saying here, your religion or your faith is really useless because if we're motivated and we're led by the Holy Spirit, that's not the Holy Spirit's nature in any way, shape, or form. That is the nature of the flesh. Um, Our adversary, the devil, one of his titles is the slanderer. That's his title, one of many. All right, let's pick it up. Chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we will receive the stricter judgment. Now, I take this very, very seriously, this verse here. And it's actually a warning to those who want to be in a teaching position because I have to give an account to the Lord of the things that we teach from this pulpit here. And I realize what I say can have effect on people's lives, on what they think, on what they believe. And the Bible says here, I'm going to be held at a higher standard of judgment because I'm standing behind this pulpit reading from this book. That's verse 1. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, but he's also able to bridle the, uh, the bridle of the whole body. Indeed, we'll put bits in a horse's mouth that they will, will obey us, and we turn their whole bodies. Look also at the ships. Although they are large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is just a little member. It's just a little part of my body. It's only about this 
this long, about this wide, and uh, very small as far as my body goes. But see how great a forest a little fire will kindle. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every beast of the, of the field and every bird, reptile, creature of the sea is tamed and can be tamed by mankind. I mean, they, you, you can go to the circus and you can see elephants doing their tricks or the lions being um, kept at bay. And um, human intervention can tame them. But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison, with it, will bless God the Father, and with it will curse men who have been made in the sim- similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter at the same time? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grape vine fig leaves? Thus no spring can yield both salt water and and fresh. So James, you know, goes right for the juggler here. He pulls no punches at all. And um, let's go back to our psalm and put it in context again. Psalm 140. And what David was, was talking about here is probably Saul. I'm guessing Saul. And all the talk that went around to get David caught. And it was continuous, so how does David deal with it? He cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, you deal with him. And you be the one that um, allows their, their plots and their schemes and their slander and their tongue. You, Lord, I pray that you would be the one that would deal with them. So he, he took that to the Lord. Brings us to Psalm 141. And again, before I read the whole thing and... Um, Um, make the main point of Psalm 141. Again, let's go to verse 3, where David is acknowledging that that could happen to him too, not just that Saul was doing. He said, Lord, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Make sure I'm not the one spreading the gossip or doing the slandering. And uh, so David wasn't only looking out at others, but he was also pointing the finger back and asking the Lord to help him himself. All right. Um, Psalm 141. Uh, again, probably running from Saul. And um, let's pick it up in verse 1. Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me, and give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. And let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands at the evening sacrifice. Two things here I want to point out. Uh, when the priest would go into the temple, he would put incense on the, on the altar there. And um, when I go to Israel, I like to buy these little charcoal things. You just set a match to them, and you put them in an incense holder, and they'll, or a piece of charcoal, and you can put your um, frankincense or myrrh and sprinkle it on there, just like they would have done in, in the temple. And it's a wonderful aroma, wonderful fragrance, and it was symbolic. 
as the priest would go in and, and put the incense on the incense altar, it would create this aroma that would always would have been in the temple. And there, prayers would have been offered. And um, the prayers are, uh, the, the uh, frankincense and the sweet aroma was symbolic of our prayers that we pray to the Lord. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. Well, that's exactly what the symbolism that took place at the altar. And then the lifting of my hands at the evening sacrifice. And when we sing songs, especially, last Sunday we sang a song about raising your hands. Lord, we lift our hands up, our, our hands up to you. Well, sometimes I do that spontaneously because I want to, but other, otherwise, just out of obedience because it tells us to here. So if you're maybe, maybe you're new to the church and you've never been to a church where they're raising their hands to the Lord, now you know why we do it, because the scriptures uh, instruct us to worship the Lord in such a way. Raising holy hands to the Lord and just thanking him openly, not being ashamed of it. Um, I think it's, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we're in the worship service so that all things have to be done decently and in order. So I think it's wrong for you if you want to stand up on a pew and do it. Because all of a sudden, I don't think you're worshiping the Lord. I think you want somebody to see it, okay? So there's, there's how we do that. We do that in an orderly fashion so that we don't draw attention to ourselves, but we really mean it from, from our hearts that we want to, Lord, you're worthy to be worshiped. So I do lift my hands to you. Why? Just being obedient to your word. Your word says to do it, so I'm, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I was playing softball on, on Monday night, and I was talking to my good friend Jerry Nelson, who's the manager of the team. And, um, but before the game, we were just fellowshipping. And he says, you know, Dwight, the Lord's been dealing with me. He says, um, uh, I need to be baptized. I've been watching a, a couple programs, and I've been listening to some messages. You know, I've been walking with the Lord, but I've never been baptized. And he says, I need to be. And I said, Jerry, you're right, you need to be. He says, you guys having a baptism this year? I said, every year since 1980. And um, we'll be having one again this year out at the, the Pierre's. And he says, when is it? And I says, I don't know, but I'll sure find out. <laughs> so if, if you haven't been baptized since you've been a believer, you should be. Why? Well, because Jesus said so. Go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that's exactly what we do. And why should he do it? Only because Jesus said so. And then as Jerry and I were talking about it, he says, you know, I should do it just because the Bible says so. I says, spot on. So Jerry's getting baptized this year, along with others who have just accepted the Lord or just coming to the place of realizing that um, baptism is, is one of the two things that the Lord actually instructs us to do. That the other would be, of course, communion. Do this in remembrance of me. All right, uh, again, verse three, we've read. Verse four, do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. You know, you're known by the friends you hang out with. Um, what's, what's hitting the news right now, of course, this big biker bust out in Texas. These four or five motorcycle groups that came together and all hell broke out and, and uh, nine guys got killed. 170 of them are in jail. They're called the one percenters. And they're just bad dudes. That's, there's no other way around it. And um, 
they needed to go to jail, they should stay in jail. And um, uh, what they're involved with is criminal activity, and they shouldn't be ex- exempt from it. Um, bad part about it is it gives a bad name to, um, um, to anybody that li- likes to ride bikes. There's a lot of people in this fellowship uh, who like to ride bikes. Tommy Bonger's up here, heads up um, the biker church here in town and um, is uh, one of the leaders in the state for Bikers for Christ. And so it opens up a door for them. They're the good guys trying to minister to guys that are in that culture. When the Lord said, we're to become all things to all people, well, that's a practical way of doing it. You know, you love to ride. These guys go out, and they get to be a witness to people who don't know Christ that happen to, to love uh, bikes too. All right. Um, Verse 5, let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness, and let him reprove me. It shall be excellent oil, and let my head not refuse it. In other words, be able to be, be taught, be humble. And if, uh, if you get uh, called on the carpet for sin or whatever, then don't harden your heart to it. That's what David is saying here. Um, um, he says, strike me. A friend and uh, reprove me for what I've done wrong, and he wants to be open to the correction. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave, and when one plows and breaks up the earth, but my eyes are upon you, O God, <clears throat> the Lord. And you I will take refuge, and do not leave my soul destitute, and keep me from the snares which they have laid for me, and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, while I escape safely. I want to go back to verse 8, where it talks about, do not leave my soul destitute. In order to say, don't leave my soul destitute, his soul has to be destitute. What I want to get sidetracked on here for just a little bit is the normality of being heavy-hearted from time to time, just as David was here. And um, I was with a brother just this last week. He just says, I just don't know why. I'm just heavy-hearted. And those were the exact words that he was using. Not for any particular reason. Not that anything was going wrong. He was just going through that particular, uh, at that particular time. Now, the reason I think it's important to talk about the normality of going through um, destitute times where you're feeling, you're just feeling down. Um, Because the flip side of that is the prosperity teaching that says you always should be happy, you should always be healthy, and you should always be wealthy. And if you're not, then something's wrong with your faith. So I think it's important that we take a scripture like this where David himself says, don't leave my soul destitute, meaning that there's times when it's going to be. And that's where we get to be real as Christians when we just say, I'm going through a particular trial and I don't even know why. I got this sword in the flesh that's bugging me and um, I don't feel very happy, clappy today. And um, 
I just want you to know just how normal that is, not only for David, but let's go and look at the Apostle Paul and show some reasons why God would allow this into our lives. You need to go to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The normality of going through a trial, being heavy-hearted. Hey, gang, I just want you to know it's normal and okay. It's going to happen. You're going to have days like that. And if you say otherwise, you're lying, <laughs> number one. And uh, it's not, you're not facing reality as a, as a Christian. I think it's more difficult for Christians sometimes because we have this spiritual war that goes on 24-7 between the flesh and the spirit. And um, Paul's was a little, little bit different, and, um, and we need to read the first part of this to understand that God allowed an affliction to come into this man's life. So let's read the first part here. Um, first of all, just what this guy went through. Uh, Let's go back to chapter 11, verse 23. He's talking about um, his labors and um, some of the stuff that he went through. He says in stripes, verse 23, above measure, in prison most of the time, (laughs) in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Jesus almost was whipped to death. Well, Paul went through it five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren, oh Lord, I'm so glad you called me into the ministry. Yeah. In weariness and in toil, in sleepless often, in hunger and in thirst, in fasting often, in cold, in nakedness. And besides all this, what concerns me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And yet, he goes on to say, who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and do I not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to apprehend me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And you wonder, this is the Apostle Paul. And this is is his daily routine. And he talks about uh, his weariness and his toils and his perils and just what he went through. I read this list and I say, I have no problems. That's what I have to come up with. I look at this and I got to say, I have no problems. Not compared to Paul. Then he says in chapter 12, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but now I'm going to come to visions and revelations from the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. 
Now, when we talk about the three heavens, we have the, the atmosphere where the birds fly around in. We call that uh, the heavens. Then you have uh, the, the Milky Way in our galaxy that we live in and the billions of galaxies that exist outside of our own Milky Way. That's also referred to as the heavens. And then there's the third heaven, and this is what we have in view here, is outside of that universe, this would be the spiritual dimension of God's throne and taken into what we would say is heaven. That would be the third heaven. And Paul's saying he went there. And he said in verse five, he was caught up into paradise and he heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now this has always intrigued me because I think if I ever went to heaven, I'd be captured by what I was looking at, not what I'm hearing. But that's not what he comments on. He comments on what he heard and it would be totally impossible for any human being to try to communicate what he heard. Ooh, I love music, okay? I downloaded, I just got my new i6. And the best part about getting this phone was I got to witness to the guy for about an hour. Because somebody recognized me from church in there. And he said, so you're a pastor, huh? And I said, yeah, I am. And uh, I said, but I hate religion. Well, this kid could not (laughs) wrap his head around what I just said. I blew his mind. And he left for a while to go to a back room, and he said, I, he said, I got I to gotta ask you something. He says, I, I'm not getting this. You're a minister. You're right. You said that, right? And I said, yeah, I am. He said, but you hate religion. I'm open. Talk to me. What do you, how, how does that happen? I said, well, not only do I hate religion, but Jesus hates religion. Oh, now I really had him thinking. What do you mean Jesus says, well, that's the one thing the Lord couldn't stand. It was the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Matter of fact, Jesus said their religion was actually keeping them from having a relationship with him. And so the Lord really went after the self-righteous religious people. Look what's being done, I said, in the Middle East. And before long, I was giving him the probability factors of Bible prophecy and uh, the, the probabilities of just eight, everybody here has heard me say it a hundred times, the probability of just eight of the 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ is one in 10 to the 17th power. And then I told him the whole story about how that would actually play out. I said, take the state of Texas, fill it with silver dollars, two feet, two feet thick, mark one with an X, put a blindfold on a guy, turn him loose, and uh, I told him the, the probability of that guy finding that silver dollar in the state of Texas is one in 10 to the 17th power. And um, I said, it's a reasonable thing to believe that this book is true. And before it was all said and done, um, I went out and got him a God of Wonders and a book, Seeking and Finding God. He hasn't been in church ever. He was brought up in Lutheran church, but he didn't have, have to go. I'm praying for this guy because I really did. He wanted to talk. It was kind of difficult because we were downloading my i6 from my old phone and we were back and forth between talking about the Lord and, um, and uh, downloading and we had all this time to kill. So I'm praying for, for this young man. 
And how in the world did I get sidetracked on that? I've got to find my way back here now. Oh, heaven. And um, hearing things that are just beyond um, what could be expressed. Paul says, of such one I will boast, yet uh, myself I will boast only in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, I will but I forbear, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears me to be. Then he says, And lest I would be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation. In other words, lest pride would enter in, and I would get a big head. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, and here is a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now I just take this literally. Uh, Some say it was possibly his eye disease that he had. He asked the Lord to heal him, and he wasn't healed. No, I think he he was allowed. No born-again believer can be possessed, okay? Uh, But you can be oppressed. You can't be possessed. But uh, we are told not to be ignorant of the enemy's devices, right? Who's the tempter? Well, you get tempted. You're not protected from that. You have to resist it. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Somebody want to give me an amen or not? So we have our responsibilities. The lines are drawn, what the enemy can and cannot do. But concerning this thing, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might take it from me. And he said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, that's all Paul needed to hear. The Lord spoke to him. And he says, therefore, most gladly, I'll boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproach, in needs and persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We started all this with David said, Lord, remember me when I'm destitute, when my soul is down, when I'm going through a trial, when I'm having a hard day. Guys, fellowship, know that that is normal and you are going to go through that and know that uh, if the Lord is not lifting whatever prayer request you might be praying about, that um, Father knows best and uh, he's keeping you in a place where he'll keep you usable rather than what? Getting puffed up and full of yourself and all of a sudden you disqualify yourself and the Lord won't use you anymore. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we do thank you for the things that we've learned from your word tonight. Thank you for when we see the normalness of David's lifestyle, that he was worried about those who would plot against him and speak against him. And he himself praying that, Lord, put a guard over my mouth and keep a watch over the doors of my lips. Lord, we pray the same thing. Also, Lord, we give you permission as David prayed. Lord, search our hearts. Lead us in your ways. See if there's any wicked way in us. And then we agree with David in Psalm 139. And Lord, lead us in the way of everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.